and I want you to allow me to add my welcome to everyone who is able to make it here today as well as welcome anyone joining us online. It is always a exceptionally joyful Lord's Day when we can gather to celebrate the baptism of a brother or sister in Christ and a big thank you to Karen for letting us be a part of that and to share that with you as your church family. So thank you very much. I know that for myself, sharing these milestones really manages to reinforce for me the bond of family that we share as a church. All too often, um, we miss some of the milestones that otherwise we'd love to be a part of, and it's always just such a blessing that we can, we can share them here as a family. I think of the milestones that I share with my kids and the reinforcement that we get as a family as we share those and we share the same kind of milestones as we share them with family here. So we rejoice with the one who rejoices. We hear testimony of the real and personal work of our Lord and we affirm our commitment to stand arm in arm with the one who is publicly committed to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. As we dig into the word this morning, we are going to continue the series that Pastor Jim has been working on as he looks at these speeches of fatherly wisdom that we find in the book of Proverbs. And the third speech is fittingly found in Proverbs 3, so if you want to be turning there, that would be wise. And we're going to be looking particularly at verses 1 through 10. I also love that we get to be looking at these fatherly speeches while we celebrate baptism as well. These speeches are wisdom being passed from a father to a son, wisdom that the father hopes to instill in his son at the beginning of his life's journey in order that he might see him succeed and grow in godliness. This parallels what we hope to see in the life of a believer like Karen, and indeed each one of us here, that God's true wisdom might form and direct our spiritual growth. So would you pray with me, and then we will read this morning's passage from Proverbs 3, 1 through 10. Our Lord and our Heavenly Father, we rejoice and we gather together today as a family. A family with one focus and one aim, and that is to worship and glorify you. And we pray that as we give you all honor and glory and praise that you might work upon our hearts to form us into the likeness of Christ. As we hear this wisdom from your book of Proverbs, we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply that to our hearts and our lives and our minds and that we might take that forward with, with confidence that it is your word and that it is useful for our faith journey. God, we pray that as we worship together what we say and what we do would be honoring to you, that you would quiet in our hearts and our minds anything that might distract us from these things, even the sound or video issues, if those arise, Lord, we pray that those would not distract us from, from the truth of your word, and Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in this way. pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Again, would you please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 1 through 10. My son, 
Do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This is God's word. If you are paying attention, you'll notice that this passage has two primary divisions. Verses 1 through 4 consist mostly of the father's personal instruction to his son, while verses 5 through 10 carry the father's instruction to the son on how he must relate to God. And each of these instructions throughout our passage come in the form of a couplet, the command and the result of following said command. In the first division regarding the father's instructions to his son, we see a build towards his instruction regarding the son's relationship with God in verses 5 through 10. Couplet number one says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Again, as Jim has stated in his previous messages, we need to remember that the Proverbs are wise instructions for us as believers, and they are instructions that generally prove true. As a father, if I am instructing my children well, and they are to obey my instructions, that should make it more likely that they live longer lives and have a more peaceful life. Is this guaranteed? By no means. The best instruction and the greatest teaching can be spurned by a heart that is hardened towards the truth. Also, just as much, if a father is misled, then his instructions to his children may be corrupted and cause injury rather than well-being. But again, it's an instruction that will generally prove true. The second couplet builds on the first. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You'll notice here that this starts to blur the lines between the father's instruction to his son and his instruction to his son about God. And the nouns here in this verse are very, very widely translated. In the ESV, we have steadfast love and faithfulness. In the CSB, loyalty and faithfulness. NIV, love and faithfulness. KJV, mercy and truth. NASB, kindness and truth. The Hebrew words here are hesed and emeth. 
the variety of translation point out something that we've been kind of learning lately that English does function somewhat as a blunt instrument of language. It gets across a, a general sense, but it doesn't quite give the same fullness that many other languages do. Hesed is so much more than just basic love. It most often refers to God's love, his loving kindness, his active and enduring care for his people. And a meth implies endurance and stability and truthfulness. But when you pair these two words together and you get an idea of some of the backstory on what they mean, they give a beautiful, fully orb picture of a love that extends so far beyond the typical, fleeting, fickle, and emotional love that we're so familiar with in our culture today. A love that extends beyond the bounds of a flash-in-the-pan romantic love that we're all supposed to chase after according to the movies or music. This love is loyal and faithful, truthful and merciful and kind. It is stable, and it is this kind of love the father commends to his son. This love can only proceed from a heart grounded in faith because we cannot grasp this kind of love without a grasp of God's love. And that's affirmed by the imagery used here of binding around the neck and writing on the tablet of your heart. If these seem familiar to you, that's a good thing because it means that you know a little bit of your Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 6-8 says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Over to Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Father is building from his own teaching, literally his Torah, another very familiar Hebrew word, and weaving the idea that the teachings that the Father gives are to be teachings that come straight from God the Father. As a father, he should be teaching the words of God. And if the son is to remember and obey these commandments, then success, favor, peace, and longevity are to be his in God's will. And these rewards for living such are measured not by the standard that we would see upon this world, but by the eternal standard of our Lord. You and I may not notice marked earthly success or favor or peace or longevity by obeying the commands of God, but we most certainly will if we view it from the vantage of eternity. That's not to say there isn't temporal blessings of following the the commands of God, but is saying that even if we don't necessarily recognize them and see them here on this side of eternity, on the other side of eternity, we can't help but notice 
the way that God has provided these things. And that leads me to the second section of our passage today, verses 5 through 10. Verses 5 and 6 form easily one of the most well-known passages in maybe all of Scripture, definitely in all of Proverbs, often found on Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs and posters. And taken together, verses 5 through 10 provide an amazing picture of what it means for the believer to follow the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. As the passage builds, this forms a pinnacle. These verses should literally guide everything in the life of a believer. Every element of our lives of followers of Christ should rest upon this kind of idea. To my daughter, as she speaks her memory verse here this morning, I should be speaking these words, encouraging her to trust in the Lord with all her heart. To Karen being baptized this morning, I should be expounding that that is the case and what we, she must do. To any Christian brother or sister, no matter what the situation, these, worry, these words carry the same weight. And honestly, preaching such a familiar passage, there's a temptation to want to try to reinvent the wheel, to say something novel and interesting. But some passages do simply do a great job of speaking for themselves. My job here this morning is not to reinvent the wheel and preach to you this passage in a way that is new and exciting. Because as you read this passage, if you don't see this passage as new and exciting to your heart, I, I have some questions for you. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel I'm trying to allow the word to speak for itself. Brothers and sisters, our trust is to be entirely and without reservation placed upon the Lord. We are to hold no part of ourselves back from him. Our whole heart is to be his. And we are to not lean on anything else, our own understanding included. As many of you know, I've enjoyed quite a few adrenaline sports throughout my years on this earth, bungee jumping and skydiving included. When I threw myself out of that plane or into that canyon, I had to have absolute and total trust in the equipment attached to my feet or strapped to my back. Either the chute would open or it wouldn't. Either that bungee would bounce me back up or I was finished and one of the worst things I could do is try to hold on to something on the plane or on the platform before I threw myself out. Our trust in the Lord is to be of this same caliber. We should trust in the Lord so fully that if by some craziness he were to be pulled out from under us that we would fall to our demise. There should be nothing that we hold on to from our old life that 
is supposed to be a safety line. No backup plan, no just in case. And praise God, we don't need a backup plan. We don't need a just in case God fails. Because our God does not fail. Not once in the history of the universe has God failed to do as he has promised to do. And nor once will he ever do so. Our God has proven himself perfectly reliable. And we must step out in faith and trust the Lord with our whole hearts. When we lean on our own understanding, we are telling the almighty, infinite God of the universe that we don't trust him and we need just a backup plan just in case he doesn't come through. So instead, we trust him entirely. And when we do so, he promises to make straight our paths. And that idea is one that has been abused in the past. Someone notices that your life is going sideways or something is going wrong and comments that you must not be trusting God. Otherwise, things would be going smoothly for you. I don't know about you faithful saints in the room, but my life has not always gone smoothly. Believing in God is not a free ticket to easy street. Being baptized is not a free ticket to easy street. The straight path is not one without difficulty or trial, but it is a path that leads to righteousness. The straight path here can be contrasted with Proverbs 2.15 that speaks of men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in all their ways. And as many of you know, I've been steeped in the book of Hebrews so long, I can't help but think of Hebrews 3.12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Here's a great example of the straight and the crooked path. The crooked path being one where we rely on our own understanding and turn from God. And the straight path where one trusts in the Lord and holds your own original conviction in Him firmly to the very end of your days. The option is laid out for us here. Do we trust in the Lord or are we wise in our own eyes? The command is for us to be not wise in our own eyes and fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If we are ever tempted to lean on our own wisdom, we need to remember what Paul said to the Corinthian church about human wisdom and the value of such. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Each of us was once wrapped in the wisdom of this world, seeking our own good and following the pattern of this world, leaning on our own understanding. But upon the work of the Holy Spirit that revealed in our own hearts and our lives our need for Christ, something happened. There arises in us a fear of the Lord, turning from our own aims to His. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We come to shun the things that once held such incredible value in our own eyes. And they become as rubbish to us. And we receive the promise of healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones. This pairing of flesh and bone is a poetic device that is aiming to get through the whole of humanity. Every part of our being, inward and outward, body and spirit. But as we all know, the believer is not exempt from the ravages of this world. Age and disease, infirmity and calamity still plague humanity's existence this side of eternity, and a believer is not exempt from that. That is why we must know first that this healing and refreshment is at least partially an eschatological promise. For every believer, we can know that true healing and refreshment are waiting for us at the end of our journey here on earth. Just like a runner getting to rest and recuperate when their race is over, so too we run with endurance the race that is set before us. Regardless of the toll it takes on our mortal bodies, because we know what we have waiting. We know that no matter what we face here on this earth, not a single thing compares even one iota to the glory that we have waiting for us. <laughs> but, in another sense, there's a present dimension to the healing and the refreshment promised here for those who would fear the Lord and turn from evil. Scripture is full of promises regarding the sustaining power of God. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
So why, while we may not emerge from this life unscathed, we know that we do not live without help. We do not live without hope. I know that for my part, I have seen some of those in the greatest suffering and the greatest need display the greatest awareness of God's healing and his refreshment. I've often said that here in our Western civilization, it's all too easy for us to feel like we don't necessarily need God. If we need food, we go to the store. If we're sick, we go to the doctor. If we feel oppressed, we go to, the pro- go to a protest or speak out on social media. But in areas where the church is heavily persecuted or where physical needs go noticeably unmet, you'll often see an entirely different kind of dependence on the sustaining work of God in a way that we rarely see in our spheres. Part of the reason why I love it when a fellow believer gets to step out of our own comfy little Western world and see a little bit of what it could be like. Even if you step out of Comfy Elk Point and visit a downtown soup kitchen, that gives a great example of what is going on in our own communities. And there have been some believers that I've met in soup kitchens and in absolute poverty. Their faith puts mine to shame because they know that if they want another meal later today, they trust in God for it. If they want to be healed of some physical malady, they don't have the money to go to the doctor, so they pray that God would somehow provide for them. And I think that dependence arises out of a knowledge that no amount of striving can fix the problem before them. They can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps and figure out a way to feed themselves. They have to depend on God. And so rather than striving in vain and relying on their own understanding and wisdom as a means to fix whatever they've got going on before them, they often will default to seeking God and his wisdom and his provision. And this is as it should be for all of us. I'm not decrying the value of good old-fashioned hard work and making sure that we take care of our families, and I'm not speaking against the blessings that we have received by being provided for the way we have in this community, the work and the food that we have on our tables. But I am saying that no amount of hard work, good job, good doctors, health benefits provide any form of a substitute for utter dependence on God. The final couplet of our passage this morning may seem like the odd man out. But in my mind, it becomes the perfect example when the commands of the previous passage are kept in mind. The previous commands, My son, don't forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments. 
Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge him. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. What is one practical area where it becomes abundantly clear in the life of an individual whether these commandments have taken root? Oftentimes it's how we spend our money and our time. If we are spending our money and our time on us and our joys and our privileges and our toys and our own building up of self, there is an issue. But our final couplet states, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This passage for me evokes something from the oldest of brotherly disputes. In Genesis 4, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. It finds more explanation in Hebrews 11.4, which states, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel, in his trust, and his fear and acknowledgement of the Lord brought the first fruits of his livestock, the absolute best. Cain, on the other hand, did not. And for that, his offering was disregarded. If in your innermost being you are faithful to rely fully and totally on God, then that which he gives you will not be held back. If we're only faithful in that which outwardly costs us nothing, then our faithfulness is proved to be lip service. The Pharisees were great at this. They were great at saying all the right things and looking all the right ways and acting like they knew exactly what they were doing. And yet when the old widow comes and drops her penny into the coffers, this woman has brought more than all of you combined because she has brought from nothing and she has brought all she has. And this is more than just money. Money's all well and good and money is a great example of where our heart is, but in our society, time is 
as much and more pressure. We spend so much time on ourselves. We spend so much time on making sure we have money. But how much time are we spending on the things of God? And that's part of Pastor Jim's encouragement to you, Karen, in that Karen lives in Cold Lake, and it's not going to be an easy thing for her commuting back and forth. So we as a church community need to commit to making sure that we keep contact with Karen, making sure that we as a church community make sure that she continues to be cared for in Cold Lake. And, I mean, look around at our congregation stretching from Cold Lake down to Vermilion. We are not a congregation that we can just simply and easily connect with one another on the drop of a hat. But seeing one another once a week on Sundays and that being the extent of our fellowship as believers with our church family is not enough. We need to spend of our time to honor and worship God just as much as we need to spend of the best of our finances. It's an important distinction, too, that it's the first fruits of our time. We build God as the grounding and the center of our schedule, and then we fit work in. We fit everything else in around God, not the other way around. If we are just slotting God into our schedule where we can, that is not giving God the first fruits of your time. So, brothers and sisters, to wrap up, the great point of today's passage is contained in those most well-known verses of Proverbs here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. If you claim faith in Christ, then no part of your existence can be held back in reserve. Internal or external, heart, soul, body, mind, spirit, finances, time, we don't have the luxury of maintaining that safety line back to our old life in the world. We are either leaning on our own understanding, keeping our options open, making contingencies, or we are trusting in the Lord with all our hearts. <coughs> that doesn't mean that we don't use our God-given faculties to make prudent decisions. There's nothing wrong with putting money aside for retirement. God has given us wisdom for that. We're not called to throw all caution to the wind and live a reckless life with no care or concern to the responsibilities that God has given us just hoping that God will handle it somehow. But we are called to acknowledge God first in all things. If acknowledging God first is going to cost you, if you look and go, I don't know how I'm going to pay bills if I acknowledge God first, then you need to start re-looking at the way you pay bills and handle, handle your finances. I don't know how I'm going to have enough time that I'm not going to burn myself out at work if I'm spending all my time not at work at church or doing something church-related. You need to take another look at how you handle your time. 
We are called to acknowledge God first in everything. To humble our own aims and plans before his direction. Our life is to place God before anything and everything else. In essence, our passage this morning takes our wills, our aims, our plans, our wants out of the driver's seat. Upon faith in Christ, we give up the lordship of our own lives, recognizing that the Lord knows far better how we are best to be used. And praise God that he knows better than me. Would you pray with me that God would be able to work in us the ability to trust in him wholeheartedly this morning? Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, even myself, I don't know how I can accomplish what you have set out in this passage. There are times where I do not trust in you with all my heart and where I try to lean on my own understanding. There are times where I seek my own path and I do not acknowledge you in all my ways. And God, I confess that before you and I ask that you would cleanse me from that. And I pray for any of my brothers or sisters here this morning that feel the same that know that in parts of their hearts and their lives that they have not trusted in you wholeheartedly, that they would seek to reorganize their priorities to put you at the very top with no equal and no one in compare. And Lord, may we be willing to trust you when it seems like trusting you will cost us. Lord, more and more we start to see the cost of the Christian faith on our lives. But we have not yet begun to experience the persecution that we see throughout Christian history. We are not yet being fed to lions. We are not yet being burned at the stake for trusting in you. And Lord, if we cannot trust in you and it looks as though our trust in you might cost us a job or a friend, how can we expect to stand firm in the face of such great persecution as may yet be coming for us? Lord, may your church be prepared by your Holy Spirit to give up everything that this earth holds dear for the treasure that never succumbs to rust or moth or thieves. May we build up all our treasures in heaven and hold with a loose grip to all of the things that this world touts as valuable. And Lord, may we as a church as a family of believers dedicated to serving you, encourage one another in that. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together this morning and worship you. 
We pray that we will gather together throughout the week and continue to lift up the truths that we can find in your word and to glorify you with all we say, all we do, all we think, every moment of our time, every dime that we spend. May we acknowledge you first in all these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now would you please stand and hear the benediction pulled out of Ephesians chapter 5. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.